All right, well, you can see what we're going to cover today, but before I do that, uh, uh, Ron, I need to call Ron Peterson up here. We did this in the announcements that you were missing, but, uh, you know, and with the big game going on today, we wanted to congratulate you on winning the fantasy football tournament for our church league this year. So. <laughs> Uh, we like to have a little fun around here, and you know, and uh, it's really great. We have uh, a wide range of people participating in that. So if you're thinking about it at all, you know, next year we'll probably do it again. Pastor Jason organizes that and puts together the league, so we have a good time. All right, would you turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter one? It's page two sixty-three. If you have your copy of the story uh, with you. And we are going to be looking at what is called the return home. Chapter 19, we're doing 31 messages in this series from Genesis to Revelation. So we're coming to the end of the Old Testament. Won't be long, we'll be uh, picking up the stories in the New Testament with the life of Christ. And uh, it's been really fun to walk through these passages together. Let me pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word each week as we come to it and we look at these different parts of biblical history and what your scripture has to say. We see its relevance to us, to our life and to our nation. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to you, in fellowship with you, enjoying the fruit of a life that is well lived for the glory of God. Father, that's your desire and I pray that you would instruct us today from your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin by doing a recap this morning. We saw in the very first message of this series that God's grand vision is to be with his people. That's why he made us in the first place. God created us so that we would live in fellowship with him. We were made in the image of God as male and female, made to uh, rule this earth, made to enjoy the fruit of it, the beauty of creation, and to live in harmony with God. And when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the Garden of Eden in this perfect environment where God walked with them in the garden. They enjoyed that kind of fellowship with God. But then came the day when man rebelled and he ate of the forbidden fruit and he was driven out of the garden. Where did he go at that time? He was driven to the east of Eden, it says, to a land of, called Shinar, or what would be known as Babylon. Babylon. And throughout Scripture, you're going to see Babylon as a picture of the world in which we live. A world that lives in rebellion to God, a world that has its own kind of worldview and standards and values. And Adam and Eve began to learn what it is like to live for God in the midst of a rebellious world. Well, you fast forward. When God comes to the point where he wants to create a new nation to be a witness for him, he looks for a man that he can use, and he calls Abraham. And where is Abraham living? He's in Babylon. He's in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's in Babylon. He's in the world. And God calls this man out and brings him to the promised land. But he tells them that now is not the time for you to inherit this land. It will be for your descendants, but they're going to live for 400 years in the land of Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed. And then I will bring them out into the land. And so his descendants do go to Egypt. And they're in this picture of the world that is very much, I mean, Egypt's a picture of the world just like Babylon. And they are there and Pharaoh oppresses them, makes them slaves. And it's a picture of the world that we are born into. 
We are born into a world of sin. We are slaves of sin until we come to know Christ as our Savior. We have a cruel taskmaster, and his name is Satan, who wants to keep us from worshiping God, who wants to keep us from knowing about him, and keep us in bondage. So what does God do? He raises up a man, Moses, who is a type of Christ, who leads them out of their bondage in Egypt into the promised land. And Israel will begin to learn what it is like to live in fellowship with God. When they obey and they walk with God, they experience His blessings. When they disobey, God sends and uses other nations, other peoples to oppress them. In the book of Judges, they'll go through seven cycles of this kind of, you know, being uh, in a relationship with God and then falling away and being oppressed and repenting and turning back to God. And seven times it goes around. They come to the point where they think, you know, the answer is we need a king. We need to be like the other nations, have this king to lead us. And so a monarchy begins in Israel. And the temple is built in Israel. And they begin to learn what it is like to live again in fellowship with God. But once again, we saw in the story how their hearts turned away. First the northern kingdom, and they would be carried away into captivity by Assyria. And then secondly, the kingdom of Judah would be overrun by the Babylonians and they would be carried into captivity, both of them going to Babylon. And here they are in the world. They're living in exile in a foreign land. They are strangers and aliens in this world. And they have now been there for quite some time. In fact, the scripture tells us that God's people would be in exile for 70 years in accordance with the prophecy given to Jeremiah. And that's where we pick up the story today. I want you to see this prophecy that Jeremiah gave. It's in chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, and it's on the screen. Jeremiah said this whole country, talking about Judah, Israel, will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. What's interesting about that is if you remember last week, I described how great the city of Babylon was with its walls towering high above the the plain there, 14 miles on each side, 56 miles in circumference. I mean, it was an awesome, incredible city. And yet the scripture says that it will be destroyed and uninhabited. And that's exactly what happened. It was left a wasteland when it was conquered and destroyed and looted. And even to this day, there are ruins there, but it is not a permanent inhabited city. So here's the people living in exile, and Daniel is there with them. And one day, Daniel is having his quiet time, and he is reading from the book of Jeremiah. And here's what he comes across. Uh, It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures... Now, you get that? He's reading Jeremiah, and he is calling what Jeremiah wrote scriptures as he should. But here, even at that early date, I mean, God's people recognize that 
the Lord was speaking through Jeremiah, that what he wrote was the Word of God. And so he's reading it, giving it the respect that it is due, and he says, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, he understood that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, and in ashes. Daniel's going, you know, he's reading this prophecy and he's going, no, wait a minute. We were brought over here in that first wave, 606, 605 B.C., right around there. And he's going, you know, it's, it's getting pretty close to 536, 70 years have passed. And he's going, man, this is getting the time when it's going to be time to go home. And we aren't ready for this. We need to be ready for this. And so Jer- I mean, Daniel pleads with the Lord and he offers up this prayer and Daniel 9 is one of the great prayers of confession where Daniel places himself in the position of all Israel and he acknowledges our sin and our rebellion against God and what I like about Daniel's prayer is the way that he uses the word we we have sinned we have disobeyed we have done these things that were displeasing to God he's not pointing the finger at somebody else in the same way that when we pray for our nation We're not to, you know, say, well, it's their fault or it's this person or that person. But it's we who stand in need of God's grace. It's we who have rebelled against him. And so we come and we intercede on behalf of God's people. And what Daniel realized is the time has come to return home and to rebuild the temple. And they would rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's a question I want you to think about as we go through this study today. And the question is this. What does God do when we make his big thing our small thing? Because time and time again, God's people would do that. God has this grand vision. And people say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't really want to do that. God's called us to join with him in his work of the Great Commission, bringing the gospel to the ends of the nations. God wants us to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And frankly, though, there are times when God's people get distracted by other things. And they get so involved in the world around them that they make God's big thing a small thing. What does God do when that happens? That's what we're going to look at today. Number one, God turns the heart of Cyrus, the Persian king, toward the Jews. And Cyrus releases the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And not only does he release them, he returns the articles from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had carried off into Babylon. And he also says that we will provide the resources that you need to rebuild the temple. I mean, it is an amazing thing that is happening here. Now, I'd like to read for us from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. 
And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had, uh, whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. This is a remarkable change of policy by this government. It is amazing what happened here. You know, this week I pulled out an old National Geographic magazine. I like uh, some of the stories that are in National Geographic, and a few years ago they had an article on Persia, the Persian Empire, and the people of Iran today. And do you know that you can see Cyrus's tomb still this day? I mean, it's there. Cyrus was a, a real person a real person in history who entered into this biblical account that we have here. And even National Geographic, you know, which is not the place I go for a biblical commentary, but even National Geographic got it right that Cyrus was a benevolent king who reversed the policies of other administrations before him. The Assyrians were ruthless in the way that they waged their warfare. And they did horrible atrocities to intimidate their people and they would displace them from their land and intermarry and mix and all of that to try and quelch any rebellion against them. The Babylonians continued some of those policies. They were a little bit nicer, you might say, but they also devastated those that they conquered and removed them into captivity. Now, they allowed some of those in captivity, though, like Daniel, to come into positions of power and influence. Well, Cyrus comes along, and his policies are very different. And in his mind, the way to have these peoples live in harmony is to return them to their homeland and allow them to rebuild their places of worship. And so he gives this order for the Jews to return. And even, again, in National Geographic, it talked about how when you look at the ruins of the capital cities in Persia, of Susa and Persepolis, where they had their summer and winter palaces. What you see on the walls are these motifs, and you will have uh, soldiers there, and they'll have their swords or shields, but they are not showing them conquering anyone. It's not like what the Egyptians and what the Babylonians did when they had these uh, wall pictures that showed them putting hooks in their conquered people's noses and dragging them off or keeping them enchained or enslaved. No, instead, they had peaceful scenes. And they appreciated the beauty and the arts and music and things like that. And so you'll see these different kinds of motifs that were there. Now, how did that all happen? Well, the Scripture says that it was the Lord who moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to do these things. Not only that... But what is also amazing to me is that God had revealed what he would do to Isaiah the prophet over 150 years before it happened. Isaiah the prophet lived around 730 B.C. Cyrus will come to power in 559 B.C. So there's a lot of time in between. 
when Isaiah wrote, Assyria was the big dog. They were the empire that controlled the Middle East. They would be conquered by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians would be conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus is a Persian. So here's Isaiah, and he writes this prophecy that I'd like to read for you. He tells us that Jerusalem will be inhabited, and it says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, that I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. He's talking about his prophets there. And who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. And he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now this is an extremely unusual prophecy in that he names Cyrus. He puts his name in there. He tells us who it is that he's going to have do this. But can you imagine that? 150 years, Cyrus has not even been born yet. The Persians are not the dominant power in the Middle East, and yet God tells Isaiah exactly what he's going to do. Critics of the Bible who do not believe that there can be anything supernatural just say, this can't happen. The only explanation they can give is they want to date Isaiah later, like after these events, and say that he kind of wrote this neat story to make it work. But all the evidence points to Isaiah the prophet living and writing in the time in which he did. And in fact, in those prophecies in Isaiah 44, 45, 46, God stakes his reputation on it. That he alone is God. That he alone knows the end from the beginning. That he can say what's going to happen and it will come to pass. And who revealed his plans to the prophets and who fulfilled them. God is God and there is no one like him. So Cyrus comes to power. He gives the order for the Jews to return. And 50,000 Jews responded to the call to return. Now that's pretty awesome. 50,000. But that wasn't everyone. And one has to wonder, why not all of the Jews? Why did they not all want to return? You know, I think the reasons or the excuses that we might think up are the same things that keep people today from doing the will of God. You know, there were probably some in living there in the capital city going, you know, man, that's a long trip. And you know, that's a pretty big desert that we got across. And I'm not so sure I want to do that. They didn't want to take the risk to follow God and step out in faith. And some of them might be thinking, you know, I've been living here a while now, and, you know, life's not so bad here in Babylon. You know, and and I've got a business, and and things are established, and and I, I just really, you know, I don't want to really do that. I think I'll just stay here. And just like today, people choose to follow the world or to go with their own interests rather than doing the will of God and listening to Him. And it is a sad thing that happened. Now I want to ask you, why is building the temple such a big deal to God? Why was he concerned about having the people go back to build this temple? 
Well, first of all, the temple is a picture of God's passion to live among his people. He wanted his people to come and to build this temple in the midst of Jerusalem as a picture of the relationship that he wants to have with all of us. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know that the Temple Mount is right there. It's in the heart of the city. It's on one of the high points so that everyone can see it. And you can imagine what God is saying is that you go about your ordinary days and your life and your work. I want you to realize that I am with you always. I am there in the midst. He wanted everyone in Jerusalem to see it. He wanted to know that their life was to be lived in relation to God. It's a picture that God wants us to have in mind as well. If you've ever gone to New England, you've seen an example of that in the villages and towns that were built or established in New England. Every town there has a town square, a green in the center of town. And on that green are certain buildings that are around it. And one of the most prominent buildings in every New England town was the church with its steeple pointing to God. And it would be on one end of the square. Why? Because God is to be at the center of life. God is to be in the midst of where we live and dwell. God is to be a part of every conversation with our work, our government, all of those things. God is at the center of life. If you go to Latin America or South America, you'll see the same thing where in those major cities down there, there's always a central plaza and you'll have this plaza. And what is on one side of that plaza? It is the cathedral. And then you'll have a government building. You'll have commerce and all of that that's around this plaza because God is to be at the center of life. And His voice is to be heard in every area. Well, when you look at the modern city today, that's one of the questions that we ask is, where is God in the modern city? Where is His voice being heard? And we've tried to kind of push Him out of our public arenas and out of government. And you know where God's presence is in the city today? It's in you and me. It's in His people. It's in His church. It's in our representation in all areas of life. In every vocation, as we go out into the world, we are to live in such a way that others can see Jesus in us and understand what it means to live for God in a fallen world. And he wants his church to have that voice in the public arena as well and to be a visible presence in our communities. The world is trying to push against that. You see, the problem in our relationship with God is our sin. And sin separates his people and the world from him. And even when the temple was there in Jerusalem, even the priest could not go into it whenever he chose. There were certain times when he would come and it was the sacrifice of an offering that was made. It was the blood of an innocent lamb or bull or goat that was brought before the Lord as a sacrifice. And the people began to learn that God required a blood sacrifice to cover our sins so that we could access the presence of God. You see, the temple was an illustration, a way to teach his people about God's holiness, about man's sinfulness, and God's provision for our sin. And what God was doing was God was preparing the world for the coming of His Son to be our Savior. All of these things pictured what Jesus would do. And John the Baptist understood that when Jesus came. John would say of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He understood that Jesus was God's Messiah, our Savior who would die in our place. Wow. 
It's a pretty amazing thing. God moved the heart of a pagan king to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then secondly, God moved the heart of his people to return and rebuild that temple. Look at Ezra chapter 3. It's on page 264 in the story. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. And then Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. So the people return home, and they start out well. They make this long journey back to Jerusalem, and God protects them under Zerubbabel, who will be their civic leader at this time. And the year is 536 B.C., 70 years after Daniel and his friends have been carried away into captivity. 70 years. Just what Jeremiah had said. When the people were carried away into captivity by the Babylonians, it was in three waves. When they return, it will be in three waves that they come back into the land. And they began by building an altar to the Lord and offering sacrifices, and then they lay the foundation of the temple. When those who were older look at the foundation of the temple, they weep because it seems so small in comparison to Solomon's temple. And it would have none of the grandeur of what Solomon had built. And Zechariah the prophet will come along to them and he will say, Don't despise the day of small beginnings. It may look small to you, but I tell you that the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And what did he mean by that? Well, this temple that they constructed would last to the time of Herod. And Herod would add on to it and expand it. But this temple would be the temple that would see the presence of the Lord Jesus. If what Solomon built was great and glorious and beautiful, and they saw the Shekinah glory come down, God's Spirit fill that place so that they could not even minister in it when it was dedicated, how much greater is it to have God incarnate, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, come and be present at the time of Herod and come to that temple? And so Zechariah encouraged the people. But what happened was that opposition arose. Their enemies don't want them to rebuild it. They try to discourage them, harass them, intimidate them. There will be a man called Tatanai who is from the northern area where the northern Chen tribes lived. And remember what happened there? They're carried away into captivity by the Assyrians. The Assyrians bring other people in. They intermarry. And they become this mixed race. They become half-breeds who are known as the Samaritans. Do you hear and recognize that word Samaritan? Does it show up later in Scripture? Yeah, it does in the New Testament. And this is where it all started. The opposition arises and the work stops. And God's big thing becomes their small thing. This big thing that God had sent them to do all of a sudden now gets pushed to the back burner. And the work stops for a year, and then two years, and then 
five years and then 10 years and then 15 years and finally 16 years pass before they renew the work. You can imagine what that construction site looked like. Weeds have grown up. The site is abandoned. Scaffoldings may be there and nothing's been done for 16 years. Their enemies think that God must not be too important to these people that they would neglect that work for so long. A whole generation of children grow up and they look at their parents' example and they think that God must not be too important to our parents either. That the work would languish and they're more concerned about their homes and their businesses and their fields than they are the work of God. What is the message being sent? It's not a good one at all. Their priorities are misplaced and life isn't going so well. They're working harder and they're making more, but they're not bringing as much home. There are struggles in their economy and there are struggles in their home. There are struggles in their marriages and in their family. Why? Because God is not at the center of life. He's been pushed to the back. He's been crowded out to the margins of life. But other things have become more important. And they don't see the connection. They don't see the connection between what is happening in their world and what's happening in their worship and in their life. So what does God do? Well, God sends seasons of trials and sufferings to get their attention. God doesn't want them to continue in this state, and so he allows these hardships to occur. And then God raises up a prophet, Haggai, to call the people back to their primary task to build God's temple. Now, I'd like you to turn to the book of Haggai. It's one of those small books just before the New Testament. And it's tucked in there. If you can find it, we're going to look at Haggai chapter 1. I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 11. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Really? I mean, isn't that what God had sent them to do? to build the house of the Lord, but they're saying, eh, it's not time yet. And then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways and go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the oil and whatever the ground produces, 
on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Give careful thought to your ways, God says. Now this passage is not saying that every time something uh, bad happens to you or me in our life that God is punishing us for some specific sin. No, we live in a fallen world and there are times when difficult things happen to all of us. But there are also seasons in life where if we have walked away from God or we have turned away from Him or lost our first love, that God will use circumstances in our life to get our attention because He loves us and He wants us to come back into a right relationship with Him. And so God was sending trials to Israel to wake them up and to exhort them to examine their ways. God's people had forgotten their initial passion, their first love. And I love this story in Scripture because it is one of the times when the people listened and obeyed. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. God so worked in their heart when they heard the word of God that they admitted their sin and they turned in repentance. And the work of God on the temple resumed and it would be completed in four years. In 516 B.C., the temple was completed and dedicated 70 years after its destruction by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It's interesting when you look at this, you know, it's a little bit too neat and clean almost. You know, you look at that and you go, this is pretty amazing. The people experienced 70 years in exile. The land would experience 70 years of rest and the temple would be destroyed and then rebuilt in 70 years. Who but God could do that? Now here's a question. Is God trying to get our attention as a nation? When we think about the things that have happened in recent times, going back to things like 9-11, or the stock market crash, or the bank crisis, or you look at what's happening with these storms and the things that are going on in weather and the droughts or the severe weather that we are experiencing, is God doing something once again to maybe shake us because where is our trust and confidence? Isn't it in our wealth and our kind of strength and we think we can handle all of these things and we are being shaken as a nation? We are the richest nation on earth and yet we are $16 trillion in debt. How does that add up? I look around this room and they tell us, you know, basically that's about $50,000 that each of us owe. That's what you owe, that's what you owe, and you owe, and you owe, you know, we're all. And you go, what? I mean, how did that happen? We have the largest military in the world and yet we can't even protect our own children in schools. We have the greatest health care system in the world and yet we struggle to pay for it all and we still struggle with national uh, crises like obesity or stress or things that are results of lifestyle choices. We're saving more than ever for our retirement and boy, what Haggai said there about putting our wages into a purse with holes in it feels just like what it's like. You know, you're trying to sock this stuff away and, and it just doesn't seem to be doing what they said, what the experts said it should do. I just read online how they said that 
Two-thirds of all the people between 45 and 60 feel like they're going to have to delay their retirement. Everything that they've been trying to do has just been kind of put on hold by this economic malaise. So if you're in that situation, you are in the majority. What is God doing? He's shaking our nation, and he's asking us to consider our ways. What is the point of all of this? The point is this, that God is either the main thing or he is nothing. Either he's the main thing in our life and in our heart, or he is nothing. He will not settle for second place. We cannot push him to the margins and think that we can get away with that. He won't let us. Jesus calls us to put him first when he said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He's talking about all the things that we need, our daily bread, our food and clothing and shelter. God will provide if we put him first. C.S. Lewis said this. He wrote, if we put first things first, we get second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and the second things. Why are we here as believers? We're here to love God with all our heart to live in fellowship with Him and in harmony with one another. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to be a light for Christ. We're to join with God in His great work of bringing the gospel to the nations. And in this story, what we see is, you know what? God can do it with or without us. God can move the heart of a pagan king to rebuild a temple. God could change the hearts of world leaders in a moment if it is his desire to do that and work that way. God can use whoever he wills. So wouldn't you rather be a part of what God is doing than to stand on the sidelines and watch? Don't you want to join with God in his great work? Is God the main thing in our life? That's the question that all of us need to answer. And I pray that today will be one of those days when we say amen to the Lord and in our prayer as we close, we say to God, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord and I want to follow you with all my heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are challenged by it and we are shown the way in which to live and experience life in all of its fullness and joy. And Father, I pray that each of us would say amen to you today and to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord in our heart, in our life. If there's anything that's gotten in the way that's been a distraction to us or that's caused us to turn aside, Lord, we repent of that and we ask for your forgiveness. Help us to walk with you as individuals and as a church in the power of your Holy Spirit, joining with you in your great work to bring the gospel to the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.